1: Alright, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring us a book from someone who I think is uh, very influential, especially in the field that uh, I'm particularly studying in. I think a lot of you will be interested in, uh, in this as well. And this is China Through the Lens of Comparative Education, the Selected Works of Ruth Peho, And uh, she's joining me today. And this is uh, from the World Library of Educationalists, published by Rutledge uh, here in 2015. And uh, Dr. Hayo is a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education of the University of Toronto. Uh, Dr. Hayo, thank you very much for joining me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Uh, So can we just kind of, uh, this book really is sort of a culmination of your uh, career in Uh, studying China and international and comparative education, and then you you have also history, higher education, and even even religion. Can you maybe just talk about how uh, or why maybe you you put this together or or how it came together um, to sort of put these pieces all into one?
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me and giving me this opportunity. I was uh, quite honored when I was approached by one of the editors at Routledge and asked if I'd be willing to contribute to their series, which they call the World Library of Educationalists. And uh, I noted that in the series, most of the books are written by scholars in either the United States, I think one other in Canada, Australia, England, English-speaking countries of the Western world. Most are psychologists, sociologists, philosophers, historians of education, a few oriented towards curriculum. It's quite a small uh, selection. And uh, all of them are oriented to kind of a life work. You know, you're invited to select 15 pieces out of your whole life's work. Not an easy thing to do. Now, what struck me was there were no titles with uh, comparative education in them. And I thought that's my great chance because I think it's a great field in education with a long history. And secondly, there was really almost nothing uh, reflecting education in Asia except one volume, called Education in the Nation-State, which was about a very influential Singapore educator, whom I know, Professor Gopinathan. So it seemed to me a great opportunity to bring together the two foci, if you like, of my scholarly life, uh, the field of comparative education and the study of Chinese education.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And, and you kind of open us up in, in the book with uh, you, how you sort of got involved in uh Chinese education. Can can you maybe just talk a little bit about that, if you could?
0: Yeah, I mean, it it was very much experiential for me. As a, as a, a young person, I left Canada at the age of 21 and moved to Hong Kong. And of course, it was the time of the Cultural Revolution, so it wasn't possible to enter China. I taught for 11 years in Hong Kong. I learned Cantonese, and then I learned Mandarin, and just became increasingly drawn to the Chinese world. Not the world of politics particularly, but the world of culture and civilization and the uh, traditions of education. And then I discovered that comparative education was a wonderful kind of toolbox for looking at and analyzing and reflecting on China's education. Partly because so often the theories coming out of sociology, I see comparative education as a macro sociology of education, really didn't fit China very well. So it was where they didn't fit Mm. when you applied the lens uh, that it became very interesting. So that became the work of my doctoral thesis, which I did in London in the 1980s. And I also lived in Shanghai at a very early period from uh, 80 to 82 uh, to Observe and understand the dramatic changes after the end of the Cultural Revolution.
1: All right, yeah, fantastic. And, and your your first uh, section is broken up in is broken into three pieces. So your first section, part one, is is called comparative education in China, and you have this uh, nice quote that you, that you say: uh, um, "The exploration of a range of theories and methods in comparative education, largely through their application to China's educational dilemmas, and to a wider issue." of education in East Asian countries that share China's Confucian heritage. Uh, what what are maybe some specific issues that you that you have included in here uh, that, that you maybe consider dilemmas in, in Chinese education? And, and if you could, uh, uh, all I know it's like a separate issue, but maybe talk about sort of the Confucian heritage, I think those are connected.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really what I'd like to address. And that's what I think was some of the interesting uh, kind of contradictions uh, arise. So if we take first the the eight East Asian societies, which are often called uh, Confucian heritage societies, that would be mainland China, Japan, Korea, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan, of course. So if you take those eight and you look at their modern educational development, From a political, economic perspective, they're very, very different. Mm -hmm. We have both socialism and capitalism, two socialists, uh, six capitalists. We have about six different colonial influences, the British in Hong Kong and Singapore, the um, Uh, Japanese in Taiwan, in a a sense Japan was a colonial power in Taiwan, Uh, Portugal in Macau, the French in Vietnam, oh, I forgot to mention Vietnam, one of the eight heritage societies. So the puzzle would be how could it be that given these very different colonial influences and given the different political and economic systems and different educational policies and patterns, there is so much commonality among them. And to me, that's been the pursuit of my life. And I felt comparative education was so helpful in understanding the shared cultural patterns coming from the Confucian heritage that shaped families, family support for children's learning, teachers, their understanding of their relationship with students, their ways of organizing the classroom. And so you have very remarkable commonalities uh, among them that would not be captured by studies that only looked at political policy, uh, educational structures and patterns, you know, as set up by the nation state. So that was really one of the the fascinating uh, pursuits of my life, to to understand that. And I found comparative education, particularly the work of Brian Holmes, who was my supervisor in London, and taught us how to use ideal types to identify and clarify very deep-rooted cultural values and use those to anticipate patterns of change rather than looking back to causality to rather look forward. And I found that really very helpful. So a lot of my work was trying to anticipate where China would go after the Cultural Revolution, you know, based upon these deep-rooted Confucian traditions which persisted. And then, of course, also its uh, its own quite unique uh, political and economic uh, patterns.
1: Right, and I think... And that really connects nicely into your into your next part when you're when you're talking about the higher education and the history, which is which is uh-huh. part two. And I think one of the things that you you tried to explore, at least I know in in one of your pieces, um, that's included um, an Asian multiversity uh, comparative reflections on the transition of to mass higher education in East Asia. So it uh-huh. still connects that same idea, but then we're focusing on uh, higher education. So if I could maybe what, what drew you to uh, higher education, especially in East Asia, and sort of uh, what, what is sort of um, uh, an idea that we can take out of the uh, East Asian or the, the Confucian uh, higher education model? If, if...
0: Yeah, I would say uh, there, there's really two insights that I felt i gained from a, a lifetime really of looking very much at universities and higher education. That was the topic of my doctoral study. Uh, China's universities and their transformation over the 20th century and the influence of different Western models, how they played out, but also the persistence of deep-rooted patterns from China, which shaped the whole process. So what I came to feel uh, was that our field, comparative education, was somehow broader than comparative higher education, a field that sort of developed separately in the 1950s and 60s as universities massified and started to look at themselves. And I felt comparative higher education was really very Western-centric, even European-centric. And so we have people, influential scholars, including people like Philip Alpac, a very leading scholar in the field, who are really claiming that the global model of the university now—the pattern—the term used is the global research university—is, right. uh, uh, you know, uniquely coming out of the European experience, and of course became the dominant model in the world through imperialism, colonialism, and modernization efforts around the world. And what I came to feel is there's something very much missing here. And scholars like Burton Clark, like Guy Neve identified two really quite different Western models of the university. I find Clark's um, typology the most helpful. He talks about the Anglo-American and the continental European models of the university. The Anglo-American being a legal person, being separate from the state, having professors who are hired by the university and not part of the state system, and having a lot of characteristics of kind of Anglo-liberalism in their shaping, whereas the continental European universities really were a part of the creation of modern states. So in France, in Germany, and many of continental European countries, the universities are actually integrated within the modern state bureaucracy. Professors are civil servants, universities' land is owned by the state. Uh, They're very much public, and uh, we have the principle of legal homogeneity, for example, in the German case. Now, very much under stress with uh, globalization and economic pressures and competition and ranking. But I found that very interesting. Uh, Guy Neve used the term, the Roman model and the Saxon model, to differentiate Between these two. And the more I thought about that, I thought about the Chinese model, the so-called curju, the uh, traditional civil service examination system and patterns, which was greatly admired first by the Jesuits when they went to China in the 15th and 16th century, introduced to Europe in the 16th century, written about by many influential scholars, including philosophers like Voltaire and Leibniz and so on, that in some way, whether direct or more indirect, the integration of higher education into the creation of modern state bureaucracies may well have been deeply influenced by a very different model than the medieval European model, which stood, of course, between the empire and the church as an independent third power, according to hastings Rashdale. Whereas the continental European university, while still maintaining considerable autonomy and academic freedom was really an arm of the state and was really a part of the state's effort uh, to modernize. So I felt that's a topic that could require a lot more reflection. And I think the only current scholar who's gone seriously into this from comparative higher education is Simon Marginson and his post-Confucian model has become quite a, um, a focus of interest, where he's identified features, persisting features in East Asia uh, from the Confucian tradition. So that would be one piece. I have another piece that's quite different, but if you want to get back to me on this first, uh, that's a kind of rethinking, in a way, of the roots of, of modern higher education.
1: Sure, sure. So the, for anyone listening, yeah, uh, Dr. Hieu just gave us a sort of a missing area in academia or maybe a, a piece that we can research more if anyone's interested out there. Uh, so if you could, I mean, it, there's been a lot of change in, in higher education in East Asia. So is it, uh, is it surprising or is this kind of what you think you, you were kind of expecting when you started studying this back in the, uh, right after the cultural revolution or and up through your up, up through your career?
0: Well, that's a, good, that's a really good question and I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. So first... Um, you know, when I wrote my uh, influential book on uh, 100 Years of Cultural Conflict, the Chinese University from 1895 to 1995, China had not really started to massify mm-hmm. at that point. So the article you referred to uh, was an attempt to predict and anticipate how far the cultural patterns, which you could see in Japan and the rest of East Asia, would shape China's massification, as against some of the very egalitarian and radical policies of of Maoist uh, socialism and so on. And in a way, I had a chance to test that out because uh, 10 or 15 years later, I published a book, Portraits of 21st Century Chinese Universities in the Move to Mass Higher Education. And we actually studied this very rapid massification between 99 and uh, about 2006-7 and looked at how at what its impact was. And I wouldn't say that my earlier work predicted, but I think it did anticipate some of the ways in which the mass system has been shaped, maintaining a considerable hierarchy, which is very much a part of the East Asian tradition, but also in China's own way, uh, ensuring uh, the, the distribution of resources through the Great Rest Project, through various efforts to ameliorate the increasing gaps that were appearing with china 's rapid modernization, really starting in about two thousand and five, right through Chinese education, there has been and a concern about equity, whereas before the concern was efficiency. Economic modernization as quickly as possible, never mind what the consequences. And in a certain way, I also predicted, you know, what has become the mantra of the Chinese political leaders right now, which is the harmonious society. Mm. Hers, yes, sure. Again, very Confucian in many ways, but very much something you could anticipate, that things would only be allowed to go so far. Uh, The other point that I want to make, which is, kind of quite different, but it also relates to higher education and its transformation, is the, um, the question of teachers and the education of teachers. My research area was universities and higher education, not particular teacher education, until I was given the great honor of being invited to become director of the Hong Kong Institute of Education in the year that Hong Kong returned to China, yeah. 1997. It was really a challenge, totally unexpected and unanticipated, but I did speak fluent Cantonese as well as Mandarin and had very good connections, particularly with normal universities in China, and I believe that's why the council of the institute invited me to take up this position. So I moved to Hong Kong in 1997, and my job was to take an institution which was an amalgam of five teachers' colleges that were two years without degrees raised it to the university level, and indeed now it has master's and PhD degrees as well, while still ensuring that it was an institution that served teachers and schools, not a comprehensive university chasing world rankings. Right. So that was a very challenging task, and it made me think a great deal about the higher China's higher uh, traditions of learning and how different they were from the medieval university and how the medieval universities emphasis on the traditional professions, on pure scientific knowledge, on the arts and literature, and so on, really meant it was not very suited to the formation of teachers for the new republics of Europe in the 17th and 18th century. So we see the French decided we have to have a whole new institution, the École Normale, separate from the university, which will form all the teachers for the new republic forming them morally, forming them as citizens, and which will create um, a nation, you know, a modern nation, uh, through education for all, compulsory education. And as I've thought about it more and more, I've thought, that is the most unique European model that parallels many of the Confucian values. So many of the values, the centrality of morality, the importance of citizen responsibility, the very close relationships between teachers and students, the close monitoring of the state, which is very p- much part of the Chinese tradition, you can see in the Econ Normale. And so to me it was not surprising that China's normal schools and normal universities were some of the most successful of their modern institutions. However, after the with the massification and modernization and the introduction of ranking systems, Normal universities found they were disadvantaged. Uh, The English-speaking world didn't know the term. Americans had forgotten that they had 100 normal colleges in the 19th century. They had been merged with universities. So when a president went to a conference and said, I'm the president of East China Normal University, people would look at him, what does that mean? And so the Chinese presidents really wanted to become comprehensive so they would be better understood and do better in the rankings. But the government made the decision, we are maintaining the normal universities. And I feel that was a very, very important decision. And one through which these unique institutions, which are very similar to Paris's École Normale Supérieure, would be able to introduce sort of alternative set of values of higher learning uh, reflecting the Confucian tradition uh, to the global community. So that was kind of the second insight, right. you know, that, that the normal school... A normal university is a place where the East and West can meet in a very um, happy way.
1: Right. Yeah, that's always an intersection I think people are searching for or uh, trying to posit. So that's, right. that's a really great uh, right. insight as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess mo- moving along from, from your book, uh, yeah. if, if we could, uh, you mentioned that uh, religion played an important role like, uh, in, through your studies or, or through your life. Um, uh, you said it's sort of a foundational role uh, in, in education development. Uh, and, and so your second, or your third part, excuse me, is uh, religion, culture, and education. You can mm-hmm. even like, close it off with a piece comparing Confucius and, and St. Paul together. Uh, and, and so, I mean, even thinking about China and, and East Asia in general, the, uh, the, the colonial, a lot of the colonial connections are through that uh, religious connection with the Jesuits uh, yeah, some fine. of the other uh, Protestant uh, missionaries, missionaries as well. Right. Um, so can you kind of talk about uh, that intersection uh, in your, in your uh, life as well and how that connects here?
0: Yeah, yeah, I would love to talk about that. I uh, grew up in a very uh, strong Christian family myself. It was very evangelical, somewhat restrictive, so in a certain sense when I moved out to Hong Kong I was seeking freedom and new thinking, but I was also gradually more and more aware of how rich this heritage was, Mm -hmm. uh, and I remained a Christian uh, throughout my scholarly life. My main focus of research in higher education was on the public universities because I felt they were very important in understanding the overall culture and change. But, of course, I could not uh, ignore the very interesting uh, both Protestant and Catholic missionary universities. Uh, Fudan had originally been founded by a Chinese Jesuit Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the influence of the Jesuits is a, is a very interesting piece in the yeah. history of Chinese higher education. And then, of course, we had 15 American missionary colleges, some of which were very remarkable and have been recognized as contributing in very significant ways to China's change. Yeah. Maybe one of the really important ways was support for women's education mm-hmm. from a very early period of time. So, yes, I have been very, very interested in that piece. And I think in my later years, it's come come to the fore a little bit more, and perhaps I can put this into a kind of a broad picture in terms of the field of comparative education and, and social uh, theory uh, more generally. I, I was I, I had just returned from uh, two years working in Beijing. I was the cultural attaché in the Canadian embassy between eighty nine and ninety one, and the world was stunned by the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, it was something unthinkable. It had really not being predicted, and I remember thinking we have to rethink entirely our field of comparative education, which had been dominated by kind of political economic categories. So on the one side you had the capitalist world developed, developing, on the other side you had the socialist world developed, developing, the Cold War had kind of shaped uh, the ways of thinking uh, about social change and social theories, and if you think about the two major sociological theories, that were also widely used in comparative education. On the one side, you have structural functionalism, Mm -hmm. modernization theory, perhaps the key theorist is Talcott Parsons, Mm -hmm. uh, predicting modernization means secularization. Mm -hmm. One of the indications religion is going to die out or become less and less important, Uh, maybe a choice of the few as individuals. And then you have Marxist theory, also very powerful, very important. Religion is the opiate of the people. So once we have fully communist society, we don't need it anymore. So you know, I had observed all of this and, and you know taken seriously these theoretical frames and tried to use them as appropriate. And then with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, it seemed like it was so clear how wrong were these predictions. So what emerges is a clash of civilizations. Right. Uh, with Huntington's Huntington. most quoted article of 1993 in his book, The Clash of Civilizations the Remaking of World Order. I'm proud to say a year before Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, I held a conference in Toronto. We called it Knowledge Across Cultures, and I brought together scholars from not only China, but also India and the Middle East, North Africa. We had Ali Mesrui there uh, to really look at and reflect on the possibilities of dialogue among civilizations, a recognition how much the West had learned in the Enlightenment process and had to learn from other civilizations. I, I felt suddenly there was space for that kind of a discussion, whereas a lot of the development aid had been catching up with the West you know, under the Cold War model. So that was a very, very important decade for me in terms of rethinking comparative education and bringing religion back in. It became so important how this is not something that is dying out. It is very important to different peoples, different regions. It's a vital force in education. So uh, over the, the 1990s, we really focused on Civilizational understanding that included religion and recognizing most of higher education developed under religious influences, mm-hmm. uh, whether they be those of Islam, whether they be those of Christianity in the European context and, of course, other religious uh, traditions in South Asia and other parts of the world and how important it was you know, to understand and make space and appreciate that whole spiritual dimension Of learning, So that's been really a great interest and the book that we published out of our conference in 1991 uh, was called uh, Knowledge Across Cultures. We republished it in Hong Kong in 2001 when I was working as director of the Institute of Education. The University of Hong Kong invited me to have the book updated. It was difficult because one or two of the authors had died, but we had updated most of it and we called it Knowledge Across Cultures a Contribution to Dialogue. Mm among civilizations. I gave it to Hong Kong U, the final manuscript, on September 10 of 2001. Oh, wow. And I felt to myself, if it had been September 11, I might have had to start all over again with the editing of that book. Right. But what was particularly notable, there were quite a lot of voices from the Islamic world in that book, and they had come forward to our conference and really wanted to emphasize some of their contributions in science and also in other human areas. So that's, uh, you know, been my interest. Um, And I think it's, you know, in the changes that have taken place globally, uh, there's a wider recognition of the importance of spirituality. Finally, to say, you mentioned the last chapter in the book, which is a very personal piece. Uh, My students, many of whom are now professors, organized a conference in my honor in 2011. It was the 100th anniversary of the 1911 Uh, revolution in China and the beginnings of China's change and it was right after the Comparative International Education Society's Montreal conference, which was in May of 2011 and quite a few scholars, I think we had about 200, came over from Montreal for a couple of days for a a one day full conference and then some other celebrations and I thought for a long time what should I talk about on this occasion Uh, when I was surrounded by people that I had Loved and worked with, and nurtured, and be nurtured by, and that was when I decided to to write this little piece, which I called "A Bridge Too Far," question mark, comparative reflections on uh, Saint Paul and Confucius. And uh, my thinking was that, you know, here were two teachers whose influence was so great that one or two or 3,000 years later, people are still holding their works and people are still deeply inspired. And reflecting on the life of Confucius, of course, China was not a unified country. It was seven kingdoms, his traveling around, his disciples, his uh, speeches, which were then written up later and preserved and now memorized by young people all over East Asia on the one side. And then some hundred, few hundred years later, I know in comparative religion we often make comparisons between Confucius and Christ, but it seemed to me St. Paul was the teacher who, like Confucius, traveled and created the foundation of a whole civilization. If he had not gone to Europe and written all his letters and and, uh, carried the gospel message to Europe, we would not have had the Christian foundations of European civilization. And so I felt that parallel was perhaps more compelling I uh, had looking at their lives and reflecting on at the time that they passed away, they had no conception of what their influence would be. And yet what beautiful examples of teachers, uh, both, of, both of which had been very influential in my personal life because of my Christian belief and heritage and then because of my exposure to East Asia. So I guess I just wanted to encourage, you know, bringing uh, religious understanding back in as a core element in education.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that that's a nice way to sort of cap off these three sections of the book, you know, ending it with something uh, so personal to you. And in the book, I think really is uh, a personal homage to, to all your work over the past uh, several decades. So it's, it's, it's really great to see all of it put together. Uh, so I guess just the, the if you want to have the, the last word on the book and then also we, we have a last question on, on the uh, New Books Network. Uh, what, what are you working on next? So what's, what's after this project?
0: Yeah, I actually got caught up in something quite new for myself most recently. Um, it, well, actually, there's two pieces here. So one piece, I'm publishing a new book about Canada-China relations and mm. uh, university linkages and so on. That, that work is more or less complete, but the book is just under review. But the other piece is much newer. I was in Xi'an, um, Last May, I I was giving a series of lectures at Shanxi Normal University, and um, the professors asked me, you know, you're going to have one half day. What would you like to see? Well, you know, there's the Terracotta Warriors. There's all kinds of fascinating historical sites, all of which I've seen at different times over many years. But in a little class I teach in my church during the winter time, I had discovered the first Christian building in China. It's called the Dachin Monastery. It's one hour south of Xi'an, and it's still standing, built in Mm. 635 A.D. So I asked them, I said, could you take me to the Dachin Monastery? And the professor said, well, we're not sure where that is. The next day, one of them came back and said, my husband works for the Shansi Tourist Administration. This is a newly developed tourist site. It's not yet open, but we'd love to take you to see it. And this is a site where... um, 21 Syrian monks crossed the Silk Road in 635 AD, were welcomed by the largely Buddhist uh, Chinese officials of the Tang Dynasty, and, and encouraged to set up communities, included in uh, many religious parades and interactions, and actually became, their own faith and beliefs became enriched by their encounter with Chinese uh, religion and philosophy, mainly Buddhist, also Taoist. Uh, And the Chinese were also very open to their teaching. So it seemed to me a very beautiful example, you know, of interfaith understanding and dialogue that doesn't lead to syncretism, but that leads to the enrichment of each religious uh, tradition. So I've been kind of following that. I've written a paper recently called Holistic Education Through Reciprocal Learning, starting with that encounter, then looking at Matteo Ricci Uh. and how he so enriched Europe by introducing the... uh, Uh, Four Books of Confucius and really being the founder of European Sinology while bringing Christianity to China. A new version, Roman Catholic, the earlier had been Eastern Orthodox. Mm. And then another uh, wonderful encounter of the 19th century of a Welsh Baptist missionary who founded Shenzhen University. And in a time of geopolitical... Um, imbalance when China was really stressed by the Western imperial powers, he was able to create a very, very respectful, dialogic set of relationships mm-hmm. that were very enriching to both sides. So I, I, that's what I'm interested in right now, sort of looking at these historical incidents and um, ways in which our education is enriched through interreligious understanding.
1: Sure, that sounds great. Well, I think we're yeah all going to look forward to that uh, both those pieces uh for sure i mean personally i I love uh uh spence's to change china so this kind of sounds like it's right up that right it's a great book right? well (laughs) uh but uh on this podcast i just want to thank all of our listeners and i uh want to encourage them to go check out china through the lens of comparative education the selected works of ruth hayhoe uh, published in 2015 from Routledge. Uh, Dr. Haya, thank you very much uh, for joining us today, and to everyone out there, I hope you win.